Hello, and welcome to the Recovering God podcast. This is a platform for people to explore issues that affect the faith lives of Christian women. We hope you find this episode interesting. Hi, Alison. Hi, Grace. How are you? I'm all right. Have you seen the Twitter storm that's happened about the church that's advertised for a man as a leader? Mm, yeah, what do you make of it? Well, I'm quite pleased, really. Uh, watch the campaigning organisation, Women in the Church, have been um, trying to get churches to put on their websites whether they believe in female headship as well as male headship uh, or not for... I don't know, about over a year, I think, maybe a couple of years. And uh, it's still not really happening. So the fact that they've advertised so blatantly, although not great in the big scheme of things, at least everyone knows where they are. And, you know, they know whether they want to go to that church or not. And mm. it, it makes their their theology very clear, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there must be so many churches that advertise um, and aren't clear about that but who wouldn't hire a woman and um, you know, women are going and applying for these jobs and using up a lot of their mental and emotional energy and applying and preparing for interviews and things like that. And they don't stand the chance of getting the job. So yeah, like you say, at least these people are being honest about it. Yeah. It's a bigger issue, but (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. In the situation we're currently in, there's nothing illegal about it and they, they're being open. So yeah. I suppose we need to say that is the Church of England. I'm not sure it, well, certainly not all churches are are so um, biased. That, yeah, that's what I was going to talk to you about, mm-hmm. about the fact that we need some female theologians, especially New Testament ones, to come forward who are willing to talk about those difficult passages in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Is, this a, is this an open call? This is an open that? call for... <laughs> female theologians who are going to come forward and talk in a um, way that is not anti-women but pro-equality about those passages and how we interpret the difficult passages so by difficult passages are you talking about Paul I'm talking about some of the Paul yes some of the Paul things so the um, what they called the household codes, which we really need to have a whole episode or about six episodes on. Actually, you know, mm. women must cover their heads and should not speak in church. Those things. Mm. So come on, New Testament theologians, we need you. Step up, <laughs> or if you know one that you can dob in, then let us know. Let us know on Twitter or email us and tell us their names, yeah. and we'll chase them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell us about who we're listening to this month. This month, uh, I interviewed Rosie Hart, who is the former, until very recently, CEO of a charity called Kairos, which um, she'll tell us more about in the interview. And very, very recently, she's made uh, quite a big life decision. Uh, again, she'll tell us a bit more about that as well in the interview. But we've got a CEO, Alison. Hey, who knew? <laughs> Should we listen to her? Yes. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Recovering God podcast. No worries. Thank you for having me. 
it's great to have you here. I was wondering if to start off, you could tell us a bit about yourself, something about your history and um, particularly what shaped your faith. Yeah, I'm Rosie. Um, I'm married to Jim. We've got a nine month old baby um, who's joyful and lots of fun and keeping me very busy um, at the minute. I've been a Christian most of my life. I yeah, was brought up in a Christian home and don't, because of that, I think, felt like I've probably always known God in some way since I was quite young. Um, don't really have a particular kind of moment of conversion or giving my life to Jesus in that way. I, well, I think I probably like sat down on my bedroom floor when I was about seven and did the whole like, Jesus, I invite you into my life because that's what my Sunday school teacher had told me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I probably have always known God in some respect, but probably my faith became much more like my own like for a lot of people when I left home went to university um also because I then had a choice whether I wanted to go to church or not so yeah I kind of got involved in leading some or helping kind of co-lead some Christian student work through fusion at the time um at university and got stuck in with church so that was quite a big part of my I think my kind of maturing of my faith uh but things that have shaped it particularly since then is actually some of the traveling that I've done um so well first of all actually I spent a year living in Argentina for my part of my degree. I did a year abroad and lived in Buenos Aires for a year. And uh, so I spent that year just getting to know a lot of local people, going to church there. And for that was the first time, I think, that I realised that God was an international God, if that makes sense, that he speaks Spanish and people, he understands all languages. So like we would be like, yeah, like worshipping at church in, in a different language. And that was really amazing to kind of see the church in a different part of the world and also realise that yeah, church around the world has, they're bothered about different things than we are here. Like they have different issues, different strengths, different weaknesses. So yeah, I lived in Argentina for just over a year. And then about seven, six, seven years ago, I lived in Nepal for six months with my previous job. I used to work for an international Christian mission um, called INF that works in Nepal. So I was fortunate to live in Pokhara for six months as well. And the church in uh, Nepal is one of the fastest growing uh, churches in the world apparently and yeah church there looks really really different um, but so I think through those experiences and also I think through in both of those countries and other things I've done um, and through my most recent work with a UK charity seeing like really tough issues around the world I think realizing that like, the poverty and the difficulty that a lot of people live in and that like, the injustices that are kind of present in the world is really something that God's put on my heart over the last kind of decade I think and realising the role that as Christians we can play in bringing about his justice to the world is something that's really important to me. And that's been really kind of exciting and inspiring for my faith, but also at times really challenging because I think I've realised that, well, yeah, life is obviously not is not straightforward and there's a lot of suffering, um, you know, and things I've been through in my through my own life or in the lives of people who are close to me have, like a lot of us, have kind of forced me to question sometimes, wow, God, where are you? in this where we you know where are you when where the hard stuff happens whether that's on an individual personal level or on a kind of you know global national level but I think God's been really kind and has kind of helped me work through those things I think I've I've come to a place where I realize that God's okay with me shouting at him or you know questioning him or saying God I'm not sure if this thing that I used to believe I believe anymore and I think I've kind of come out of that other side of that sort of journey to a place where hopefully I've got a more real kind of authentic relationship with God rather than something that's just like something that I grew up with as a you know as a former kind of Sunday school type faith something that's a bit more gritty I guess and kind of can 
yeah, I guess I've like tested God and found that he, he can be tested and that Christianity for me still stands against all of the kind of challenges that, that life kind of can throw at it. And that yeah, God knows and understands all the, all the tough stuff that happens in our lives and around the world. Um, that doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Yeah, so that's kind of my faith journey. And right now I'm a stay-at-home mum. I was, uh, for the last three years, I've been working for a women's charity in Coventry called Kairos, Women Working Together. Um, but I've actually just recently handed in my notice there. So I'm now going to be doing the stay-at-home mum thing for the next, for the foreseeable future, which is uh, exciting and scary in equal measure, probably. Would you call yourself a Christian feminist, Rosie? Having listened to other episodes, I knew this question was on the cards um, and I've been pondering it. And on a very simple level, I think, yes, because I would call myself a Christian and I would call myself a feminist. But I think having, well, actually through listening to the Recovering God podcast and also other kind of reading and things that I've been doing, just kind of engaging with little bits of things online over the last few months. Importantly, actually, become you know, become much more aware of how for some women that's you know, particularly like women of colour, that's kind of quite problematic. So this is me kind of saying, I would, yes, call myself a Christian feminist, but with the caveat that accepting that I know that actually from a kind of middle class white place of privilege, that's something that's not been a problem for me to identify in that way. So I'm me publicly committing to kind of doing more learning in that area. I really, I've only listened to a snippet of Sanji's episode, but I'm kind of want to engage more with that. And we've had some conversations with our 20s and 30s group at church um, following the Black Lives Matter movement and what that looks like. So I'm kind of something that I'm kind of really trying to get involved in and read more about in all different contexts I think so. That was great so let's talk a bit about your work at Kairos then so you were before handing your notice in you were CEO of this charity is that correct? That is right yeah I I think I still probably like a lot of women still struggle with kind of like owning that title like um when I first moved into that role I was actually called director which I was kind of more comfortable with because it didn't it sounded less grand um (laughs) And the board decided that actually they wanted me to be CEO and for a number of different reasons. And we were having a kind of restructure and stuff and it made sense. And uh, I still like, I still even now, even though I'm not the CEO anymore, I still cringe a little bit at like telling people that that's what my job was. I used to just say, oh yeah, I was in like, I was in charge or I like managed the charity. Yeah, something that I was kind of still getting used to owning, I think, that title. Well, we will we'll put that title in the blurb. So it's in, in writing, <laughs> everyone knows. <laughs> is a christian charity is that right um it's not actually so it um it has christian origins so um so yeah the word greek word kairos is from the bible um and so it was set up by a really amazing christian lady called barbara um but actually over, it has not kind of kept its explicit christian identity so kind of got like a lot of charities actually has got kind of faith roots but doesn't formally call itself a christian organization anymore and so the charity supports um, a particularly vulnerable group of women. Could you explain a little bit about uh, what the charity does exactly? Yeah, sure. So Kairos exists to um, support women who are at risk of sexual exploitation. And by that, we mean women who, by their circumstances, are likely to be sexually exploited and are vulnerable. So that uh, majority, well, the history of Kairos started out with um, supporting women who are in street prostitution. Um, and that makes up the majority of the work that we do uh, with women. But over the last eight, seven, eight years, we've also expanded to working with women who are younger women who are at risk of exploitation. So that's often the kind of types of examples people often remember and know from TV and things is like the grooming gangs and stuff that's um, that's gone on. And so there's often young girls who have been 
victims of child sexual exploitation or um, kind of coercive relationships or behaviour as under 18s. Um, and what we discovered um, over the years is that once those young women turn 18, often they're, they're likely to still be you know, just as at risk, just as vulnerable, just as caught up in lots of unhelpful groups and relationships and often you know, drugs and crime and all sorts of things going on, a lot of abuse. Um, but because they're then adults, they're not seen as vulnerable anymore. So they're not seen as kind of a, something that the child protection services need to come in and, um, and social services need to come and help sort them out. They're suddenly, you know, seen just as a prostitute rather than someone who's being sexually exploited, even though, you know, one day they're 17, the next day they're 18. Yeah, we support women through uh, street outreach, kind of taking harm reduction items, which means so a lot of them in our drug users. So things like clean needles and stuff to help them. We know that they're going to use drugs anyway, so we need to kind of encourage them to do it safely. And that's our kind of engagement with women and building trust and relationship with women who are working on the street. And then the, the vast majority of the work is kind of what we call one-to-one casework or floating support. So it's basically coming alongside the women and helping them with any issue that they might have because the women have all got what's called in the sector multiple complex needs and they really are it's so it's everything from yeah being victims of sexual and physical domestic abuse uh drug use mental health a lot of physical health issues homelessness really low confidence broken family situations isolation you name it most of them have will actually tick all of those boxes and, and more. Um, so they're very, very needy, very complex women. Also really amazing, strong, resilient women um, because of what they've been through. Um, so we kind of help them navigate all the different services that they have to engage with, like getting housing sorted, if they're addicted to heroin, getting onto a methadone script, which is a kind of form of treatment for that, whether it's re-engaging with family, accessing mental health services, navigating that kind of minefield, any and all of that as well as we do some run some groups um help women kind of move forward with their lives in lots of different ways that's amazing they're survivors that's what we often talk about with the women at kairos is they are survivors of all the different things that have happened to them because i don't think i've met any any service user at kairos who hasn't been abused in some way as a child and that's kind of often has been their the journey actually that ends up sadly in in street prostitution is that abuse and that trauma um, that kind of sets off so many different problems in their life and so drugs become a coping mechanism deal with the trauma of um, of the abuse that they've suffered often they then have children that, that have been taken away by social services so yeah so kind of very needy very yeah very gritty I guess that's the kind of word I use quite a lot um, just in terms of um, they tell it exactly like it is they don't you know they don't they're not backwards and coming forwards as they ever mm-hmm. some people um so they don't like something they tell you which is kind of actually really refreshing they wouldn't happily sit in a nice polite church service i think if they didn't want to be there you know if they did want to be there that would be that would be great but um it's not a place you often find the kairos women i think what kind of reaction have christian friends or people that you've known what kind of reaction have they had to the kind of work that you do has it generally been supportive or I think generally been supportive, but what's been interesting mixed is people's reactions to when you tell them what the work of um, the organisation. So it's always for me, it's the moment when you first say the word prostitution is really interesting when you kind of to watch people's face, kind of how they react. Some people are just quite taken aback. Usually the response is then, oh, oh, that must be interesting or that must be challenging or people usually find some kind of general word to describe it. And often of course, depending on their own experience of what the kind of work that they're involved in, that whether they'll know much about it or not. I've had some, it's been actually a really great opportunity often to help people understand a very complex 
group of people because I think generally women in prostitution are very misunderstood, very judged. There's often masses of stigma around sex work and selling yourself on the street and all that kind of thing. So actually to be able to talk about women from more of a place of knowledge than most people have, I felt that's like I've been a real privilege to actually get to explain the lives of those women and why why they have ended up in that situation. A lot of people have said, oh, wow, okay, I, I now understand why those women end up in that situation because most of us have never spoken to you know, a street sex worker or a homeless person beyond just maybe buying them a coffee or something. So to actually like know these women more and know their stories and to know where they've come from, like in any like any situation, the more you understand something, the better you you could more you can empathise uh, with them. So um, yeah, I had one experience with uh, I won't say where, but it wasn't a Christian thing actually. A, a event I was at that was um, I was speaking about Kairos and was going to just get a little check for the charity um, and sat next to this guy at the meal and uh, he said, "So uh, tell me why." there are so many homeless people in Coventry when there's, you know, there's beds available at the Salvation Army for them every night if they want it. And this guy was quite like an important guy in the room. And it was really challenging for me to know how much to kind of challenge his quite prejudiced beliefs. And so I decided the best way was to kind of, I told him like the a real life story about one of the women that we work with. Um, and I don't think he kind of quite knew <laughs> where to look after I finished because um, I thought, well, I'm never going to see him again, probably. So this is my chance to help educate him. Yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, some people yeah, have really engaged with those conversations. Some people would actually just find it too complex and don't want to know um, and kind of shut down the conversation. But generally, I found that if I've had the opportunity to talk more than just at surface level about it, people have, have been really supportive, which has been great. And then so recently, very recently, you've made the decision to be a full-time stay-at-home mum to your lovely daughter who's was it nine months old you said yeah she's yeah she's she'll be nine months in a couple of weeks time yeah so it's um it surprised me actually um I really really thought that when I found out I was pregnant um and we were kind of imagining kind of me us becoming parents me being a mum I really envisaged that I'd have a kind of year of maternity leave and then I'd do like a lot of my friends have done and go back to work probably part-time but basically I just found I actually enjoyed being at home with my little girl a lot more than I thought I would I think I thought I'd find it quite boring some days um I mean some days it is a bit you know relentless uh, looking after a baby and children is um can be quite a full-on but even in lockdown when it was just me and her and my husband working at home as well but obviously he was busy in the office and so it was just me and her for kind of days on end and I just really loved it and um I've really enjoyed becoming a mum and kind of discovering I think I could different part of myself and a different sort of side of my personality that I kind of guess was waiting to come out so we started to talk about kind of later in the year and did I want to go back to work and um, my husband was really supportive with whatever I wanted to do basically and also we had to think about if it could make it work financially and all of that sort of thing and I just gave myself a deadline to decide because I didn't want to spend all summer deliberating about it basically I wanted to give my colleagues a decent amount of notice so and they knew that I wasn't coming back later in the year yeah, that's the decision that I made kind of it was a bit scary making the phone call to actually like hand my notice in. I thought, OK, it's no going back now. But I definitely feel we prayed a lot about it. And it, yeah, it just I know even though some days I think I probably will miss work. I know I know in my heart that it was the right thing for us as a family. So I feel like feel at peace about it, to use a very Christian term. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to hear you make it sound like it was a very easy decision. It wasn't. It wasn't. I 
deliberated for a long time about it. I think I was quite influenced by, uh, you know, I spoke to a number of different friends over the period that I was kind of considering about it. And, you know, if on one day I'd spoken to a friend who was kind of back at work, either full or part time and, you know, hearing about their experience, I think, oh, right, no, I should go back to work. And that's what I want to do. And if I spoke to other mums who are also stay at home mums, I thought, oh, no, that's what I want to do. And, yeah, I kind of tossed and turned quite a bit, but um, I realised it kind of, it really had to come down to what, what I wanted. I was a bit worried about what people would think of me, I think, particularly because I kind of got to that CEO position and, you know, it was done quite well at work um, in the sort of last year that I was there. You know, things were kind of really coming together and charity really moving forward. And it was a really exciting time. Um, I think I felt like an expectation that wasn't actually there, but it was in my head of that people... Um, thought I should go back to work or that I would go back to work because I was a CEO and that was there would therefore be a massive jump from CEO to stay at home mum and those two things aren't compatible I think yeah I think I just because I always thought as well that I would go back to work it surprised me but when I kind of really stopped to reflect and decided what I actually wanted I kind of knew deep down that I didn't want to go back um, at this point and um, just want to spend these years while she's little at home yeah so we'll see how we get on <laughs> look forward to hearing more about it as it, as it progresses. Yeah. Do you feel like there have been or there were any expectations that influenced your decision from either your Christian background or your feminism about what a woman should do? I think that's part of where the expectation in my head came from actually is I think because a lot of people, a lot of my friends know that I'm um, you know, really passionate about feminism and the women's sector and being an independent woman and kind of, you know, I post quite often about that kind of thing throughout the year or like on my social media and that sort of stuff. So I think I kind of had this awareness that people know that I'm engaged in those kind of that sort of world. So I therefore sort of thought, well, that's what feminists do is they go back to work after having kids. And obviously that's not true at all. You know, feminism is about equality for women and women being empowered and free to make whatever choices they want including staying at home if that's what they want to do um so I kind of had to re-remind myself of that I think I think with church Christianity I wouldn't say there's been as much of an influence um just because I know from kind of Christian friends uh, the mums they're all doing a real mix of things so some Christian uh, friends are uh, yeah have also decided to stay at home while the children are small other people have gone back to work part-time others have gone back full-time um, others have you know started their own businesses or whatever so I've seen a real spectrum which has been really great because you think actually and hopefully the more we see that the more women realize there are options for them available and the other Christian friends and things around me if everyone's just been really supportive and just said you know it's whatever whatever's best for us as a family really so that's been that's been good but um, I definitely felt that pressure on myself that you know kind of a modern modern woman goes back to work after having children and that maybe that was the kind of more easy option somehow to kind of do the like nice stay at home in the like little bubble with my baby yeah so that's it so you talked at the beginning when you were talking about your faith and how it was shaped you talked a lot about your passion for justice and particularly seeing sort of inequality around the world and um and how that's shaped who you are and I guess the work that you've done in different charities and things how do you see that side of things continuing if you want it to continue whilst you're a stay-at-home mum do you see that that maybe needs to be put on hold for a while or is that something that you really want to continue to engage with yeah I think it's kind of a journey that I'm I don't probably actually in the middle of doing and exploring is realizing that my interests and the kind of passions that God's placed in my heart don't suddenly stop because I'm not going out to the workplace every day that actually I can still be involved and support those things it doesn't mean you know you can do that from wherever you are 
also just how that how you do that is going to look really different for me and the time that I've got to dedicate to things is going to be different I used to always think that issues of justice and equality were in other countries and that's that's part of the reason why I actually wanted to work for a UK-based charity after leaving my previous job was because I realised that I knew a lot about community development overseas. I'd done a master's in it, but I didn't really know anything about inequality on my own doorstep and kind of didn't actually understand the experiences of people in my own country who have very different backgrounds from the one I do. So I think... Engaging more with UK-based work has kind of helped me see that that's something I continue to do wherever I am um, because I can't travel um, as easily now abroad. But actually, I'm lucky to be part of a church that is quite heavily involved in its kind of community outreach. So we've been delivering food parcels to like families in need uh, during lockdown. I've been yeah looking at kind of um, is there ways I can support through in organisations like there's organisations like Christians Against Poverty and our church also runs a food bank and stuff. So there's lo- there's lots of actual opportunities that I think are going to be available to me now I've got more flexible time um, to potentially serve my community in a different way. I mean, the internet is brilliant, isn't it? In that I kind of, there's just so much I can still kind of read and respond to and engage with online. You know, whether that's kind of you know, petitions or blogs or reading stuff or sharing things online. Um, I think that can be a really great tool to help us continue um, in support of things, even if we're more home-based. And then that's true for everybody, whether people are at home out of choice or because they're you know ill and can't go out to work or whatever. There's That can be a really good tool, I think, for people to engage in issues. Although, obviously, with the caveat, the internet can be a horrible place sometimes. So, yeah, with that kind of balance in mind, I think I'm hoping to kind of, yeah, make the most of the internet and the nap times that I get currently in the day. And just it's kind of a live situation for me of working out what that looks like to, you know, when I've only got free time at certain points of the day or in the evening. I can't always go out to events like I used to so easily. But I'm kind of looking forward to sort of that journey I think and hoping that I can continue in my support of yeah particularly like the women's sector but also kind of issues of inequality and justice in both overseas and and at home and we'll yeah we'll see where God leads I think. Fantastic I think it's amazing what parents can get done during nap time. Rosie what is your image of God or what do you call God? This question reminds me of in when I was in about year seven at school, we did an RE lesson and one of the questions, and we, look, we were looking at what, like, I, remember, I can still actually picture the textbook page, which had like different images of God examples. And there was a like the stereotypical, like man with a white beard on a kind of throne in the cloud. And we had to pick which one we, uh, we most identified with. It was this um, kind of sort of ball of light and this kind of idea of like, this kind of energy and source of like life and power. I don't think I have one image for God. I think I have multiple images that I kind of draw on at different points, depending on how I'm feeling and kind of where I'm at in my faith. So I definitely have got this sense of, yeah, God is like the Logos, the kind of God is kind of this like life and the kind of, you know, this idea that God breath in us and the things that gives us our kind of soul and our being exists in the universe. I think that's that's God, but also I mean, I'm fortunate to um, have positive relationship with my dad, so I don't have a problem with thinking of God as father so but I think having kind of become more of a committed feminist in the last 10 years or so I don't try to see God just in the kind of male obviously I mean so we always make God in our own image don't we so it's really easy to kind of think of like God as a man and talk about him and his he and I don't have a problem with calling God father but I try to think him less obviously gendered I think these days just because I know that God isn't 
isn't in male gender he's outside of that so I find kind of something I'm actually trying to myself to do is to try and kind of imagine God in lots of different ways and actually since becoming a mum I've actually found it easy to imagine God as a also as a mother kind of I think there's also there's this verse in the Bible that talk about God like you know I like got a hen like guarding her chicks or there's that verse um, where it says God says you know in a way that the mother can't forget the baby at her breast I can't forget you says to Israel um, and it, those kind of verses have become much more poignant and real I think since becoming a mum and realising that that kind of intimacy and tenderness and softness that you experience with a kind of tiny baby when you hold them to your skin and that's the same intimacy and softness that we have with God so I think that's I've actually I've learned quite a bit I think I've journeyed in my relationship with God through becoming a mum myself which has been a real privilege. Oh that's really interesting thank you. Uh, and our last question then, which is, what do you think is the biggest issue affecting Christian women today? Oh, um, so hard to pick. I don't know if this I see this as the biggest issue, but I think when I was thinking about this question, um, the thing that kind of came most to mind kind of most often was, I think, or I think it's an issue that actually affects all women, not, not just Christian women, is how do we become who we really are rather than what we think others think we should be, particularly men, you know, kind of think we've grown up, we're still kind of throwing off the patriarchal shackles, if you like, of, you know, roles and uh, expectations of women in society how we should like dress how we should behave the kind of things we should do for work or not how we talk how we have our own friendships or you know it kind of pervades every area of life I think and you know women have come a long way since you know 50 100 years ago but I think the kind of embedded patriarchy is now much more subtle and I think that's much much harder to break free of and if so for Christian women it's, it's kind of all of that but plus then how we experience that in I guess in church in particular so you know lots obviously not all but lots of churches now have both men and women can lead churches and speak but there's still I think a lot of underlying kind of unsaid expectations and stereotypes that also as women we engage with and kind of assume and so how do we challenge those that not to be afraid of um of speaking up when things don't feel right or um and yeah I think that having that courage to actually speak out against things where you think that it's not fair without worrying that you're going to sound like you know an angry feminist like a lot of people I think well I think I still worry that um people will think oh it's Rosie again banging the feminist drum or oh can't we talk about something else today rather than women's issues or whatever I think one of my pet hates is that women's issues often get talked about as though we're like a minority group whereas we're half the human race I think that's something that's always really more than half I think (laughs) 51% yeah (laughs) and obviously that and it's you know it often gets kind of grouped in with other minority groups understandably because you know we're kind of all marginalized in different ways so it's about promoting those those groups but I think I still find it frustrating that women's concerns are still treated in a way that doesn't give them the same equality as as men as men get so I think it's how the women kind of have the courage just to stand up and be actually all that God's made us to be without being afraid of the consequences and I think it's something that I'm still challenging and journeying with is how do I yeah do the things that God's called me to do and follow the interests that he's given me no matter what other people think and it, you know even other women I think we're you know we're really bad at like judging and comparing with each other aren't we comparison is the is a thief of joy you know kind of how we're always looking kind of sideways at what other women are doing and see that like for me about whether I stay at home or not it was about what other what are the other mums doing but actually what is it that God's called me to do and how can I just focus on him rather than rather than comparing myself to others around me that's a brilliant answer thank you Rosie thank you so much for giving your time to talk to me today it's been an absolute pleasure oh thank you no I've really enjoyed it it's been uh, it's been really really great to be on
So, Alison, what did you think? Well, she's lovely, obviously. And a very gentle sounding soul for somebody who was a CEO of a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a charity. I was really struck when she was talking about how she felt uncomfortable with the title of CEO. And it reminded me of the Kate Coleman stuff in her interview and her book, The Seven yeah. Deadly Sins of Women in Leadership, you know, that kind of refusal or reluctance, I suppose, to step into the shoes of that leadership role or at least that title. So, you know, not that, I mean, Rosie did step into that that leadership role. She was already in it. But actually that that discomfort with that um, title. And what is all that about as a as a woman? Do you think that a man would ever have that difficulty? Probably not. And I, I think Rosie and I talked a, bit, a little bit about this before we started recording. CEO sounds like you should be a white man called John. And so if you're <laughs> not, that, then it sounds a bit strange, almost like you're playing dress up. You know, when oh, something doesn't yeah. quite fit you or like, you know, a biblical analogy would be David trying on Saul's armor when he has to go and fight Goliath. You know, if it can, if we've been told that a CEO looks a certain way and then you put on that role and don't do it in the way that you've been told it works, then it can probably feel a bit like ill-fitting armor. And mm. that doesn't mean that you aren't qualified. It doesn't mean that you can't do the job brilliantly, if not better than a lot of other people. It just means that you have a slightly different shaped armor that you need to wear. Yeah. It's like the whole thing about needing a role model and role models so that you know you can step into that. It's it's mm. We've talked about this before, haven't we, about... Um, the colour of a colour of skin or women in roles or, or whatever it is you know we need role models so that we can follow somebody being the first person is really hard not that Rosie's the first female CEO of course not of course not maybe she mm. needed a mentor or maybe she had one mm. maybe that helped her mm. we, didn't, we didn't get that far did we no I had to go and look up Kairos yeah, what did you find out? Uh, an ancient Greek word meaning opportunity, season or fitting time. Ooh. Which is a lovely, lovely idea about that charity, about, you know, taking the opportunities to help those women. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I was really mm-hmm. struck by the work of the charity. I thought that was so powerful, so wonderful. Mm-hmm. I was struck by how little understanding I have about the vulnerabilities and often, I guess, the abuses that women who are, what was the term Rose used, um, sort of vulnerable to sexual exploitation. I knew she was saying about how they can be 17 one day and being looked after and then 18 the next day and then they're just a prostitute. And, you know, you do have no idea how they got to that place and make all kinds of assumptions and judgments and prejudices about them. And um, yeah, I know what you mean. We 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 haven't got a clue, have we, in our uh, white middle class privileged positions about how hard life is for a huge number of people. I think, and I think that we need to be more aware in church. I think we need to be getting our hands dirty more, like Jesus did. It was interesting what Rosie said about the reactions that sometimes she gets from Christians about the work that they do. And, you know, she was saying about they they have they give out clean needles 
And I can see some people turning their nose up at that and saying, well, they shouldn't be taking drugs in the first place. And actually what Kairos is saying is they're going to do that and we want them to be safe. Um, you know, that That's such a loving action, isn't it? It's not judging. Yeah, it's not making any judgments about the lifestyle that they're leading. And I'm sure they're doing things to help people out of addiction um, who want that. But for people who are doing it anyway, it's saying, you know, even at your lowest ebb, we want you to be safe and we want good things for you. She said it's not a Christian charity, but it's a hugely Christian action. Mm. Giving people what they need rather than what we think they need. It reminds me of Jesus saying to um, the blind man, what do you want? It's quite wonderful, isn't it, to go actually what seeing what people need and being able to help them with that. It's like the idea that we should people in the world who don't have access to clean water and we want to tell them about Jesus. Well, hold on a minute. Let, can we just give them some clean water? That would be great, wouldn't it? I was reading I was reading something that the work of the charity tier fund are doing where they're helping people to get solar panels wow give them uh, in tanzania because they live near the equator and 12 hours of the day are in darkness and so giving them solar panels enables them to have light at night which gives them more security it means that children can read it means that they can um, their livestock safer because they have got electricity in the country but most of it is with it in the big cities with you know a small percentage of the population that have got more money than the, the poorer people in the out in the villages give people what they need what did you think about rosie's decision that she's made to step down from being ceo and be a full-time stay-at-home mum and the process that she said she went through to make that decision oh <gasps> hard that's really hard i wouldn't have wanted to be in her position and it was interesting to hear her talk about that kind of internal fight with herself about what to do about that it's really difficult. I stayed at home with, with my daughter. I said I'd never do it again because it was like so tedious. <laughs> <laughs> and did, I think I did voluntary work from when she was two and she went to a nursery, which, was, which saved me from my brain going into complete atrophy. I think it was really, I think it's really hard. I, you know, I take my hat off her for making that decision when she was somebody who thought that she wouldn't make that decision. Tell you what made me really sad was that we're still in a position where men can't make that decision mm. so easily. Not in our country anyway. No. I mean, they do, some do, and it, it happens, doesn't it? More and more, definitely. More, more and more it's happening. So when, our, when my daughter was, was young, we had friends, and the father stayed at home, looked after the children, and the mother worked. But that was very unusual. You know, he used to, he used to talk about going to the toddler group and what have you and how difficult that was. And, I, and you know, you still hear dad's doing that even though there's more of them going Mm. but wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a country where actually men and women could both work part-time alongside each other without any problems and that that would be okay and nobody's career would be in jeopardy nobody would think any the worse of them that's what I long for the infrastructure isn't in place to support that necessarily there is a bit more because now you you can get shared parental leave that's really good and you know we are one of the countries with the best maternity leave in the world and you can share that now but there are places like is it Sweden I think where three months of your maternity leave is allocated for the man if there is a man in the partnership and if he chooses not to take it then you lose it. So, so more and more men in Sweden, obviously that 
is very um, heteronormative that assumes you're in a couple where there's a man who can take that. I don't know what happens if you're a single parent or all of that, but that's the government saying, we think this is important and we think that you should be doing this. Um, we're going to give you an, an incentive to, to do so and more and more men take it up. It's all about representation, I think, as we were talking about before, that you can see more and more people. So for, in this instance, more and more dads taking time off work to to be with their children whilst women work, then more and more dads are going to see that as possible and, and do it. And more and more workplaces are going to be open to that idea and there'll be less stigma attached to it. The thing that didn't surprise me was when Rosie said that there, there were expectations she felt from feminism about what a woman should be doing and that that usually looks like a woman should go back to work if you're a feminist, you should be at work. And or one of the reasons we wanted Rosie on the podcast was because she represents a whole spectrum of women that you can be a stay at home mum who has been a CEO. You can't look at stay at home mums and assume anything about them, assume anything about their education, about their abilities, about their experience. But I think sometimes as feminists, there is an assumption because, and again, this isn't, this isn't womanism at all. This is very much white feminist history. So much of feminism in the uh, 20th century was about women obviously voting, but then women being able to go to work and move outside of the home and have jobs and go into these sort of male-dominated environments. Obviously for women of colour, that was not the issue at all. <laughs> these women were having to work anyway. And so that wasn't an issue that that represented them at all. But I think because of that history, there's this expectation that if you're a feminist, you will be working because that's what so many feminists have fought for. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of um, Mrs. America. Did you watch Mrs. America that was on TV recently? Oh, I don't get to watch much TV at the moment, Alison. <laughs> Tell oh, me about it, though. Terrifying. So it was about the story of feminism in America in the 60s, 70s, and uh, what happened or what didn't happen to try and get a vote in for, for equality. Um, which never got through in the end and still hasn't. Well worth watching for any of our listeners. If you can find it, I think it was BBC. Um, so Mrs. America, well worth watching. Uh, and because it was based on reality, sadly, there's no happy ending to it. But um, lots of lessons for uh, how women work together and how we maybe shouldn't work together. And, and it was showing women on both sides of the argument which in itself was really interesting. What did you think about Rosie's biggest issue for Christian women today, becoming who we really are and sort of moving past the expectations placed on us of what it is to be a woman and moving past all of those things and restrictions and trying to actually get to the bottom of who it is that we are? I think that was a really good point, yeah. And again, I think that's really important for men as well as women, you know, this kind of, you know, trying to fit the norm or feel that we have to behave in certain ways is really unhelpful for, for, for everybody. And particularly, obviously, for women, it would be great to be, feel that we could be the person that we were created to be without meeting social expectation. I think that's what God wants. You know, the whole Genesis 1, God looked at us and saw and saw that everything God had created, including humanity, was good. And I heard somebody saying this morning that 
the word good can also be translated beautiful. So God looks at us and says, you know, you're beautiful, um, which is fabulous. And if we all believe that, I think we'd all behave very differently. Mm, I think so. And it reminds me of when she was living in Argentina and, and traveling a lot more. And when she realized that God is an international God and God speaks all the languages that there are. And you were saying about cultural or societal norms that we have about what men should be like and what women should be like. And those are different all over the world. Mm. And God must just look at us sometimes and laugh <laughs> when, we're, when we're trying to figure out who we are and, and what our purpose is. And we're being so restricted by what our little island, in our case, tells us we should be like as women or we should be like as men. And actually having a more global picture could probably be quite helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hearing some different perspectives, going and living in a different country, I think it's a great thing to do. I, mm. I'm just thinking about when my daughter was a teenager, you know, they were talking about women working, I think, at school. And uh, one of my daughter's friends said, you know, there'll never be equality as long as women give birth. And mm. I was horrified at the time. And I'm still horrified by that. But I kind of think, you know, is there truth in that? How could we move? How can we move on from that? The fact that, you know, at, in this country, if you because you have a baby, you're seen as a, a problem to employ. You know, do we promote you? Don't we promote you? Are you going to leave? Are you going to be a problem? And if actually it was all about both parents, then that would change significantly the situation. So it was really important, wasn't it, to to hear somebody who is a feminist talk about wanting to stay at home with her children. You could actually have the right to choose whether you stay at home or whether you mm. go to work, feminist or not. Mm. Yeah, and she said, didn't she, that feminism is about choice rather than being about one particular lifestyle or another particular lifestyle. It's about women being able to make the choices about what lifestyle they want to live, which I think is really important. Yeah. What did you think about her image of God? Oh, that thing about the book in school with the... Well, that's not, that's not what her image of God was. But um, <laughs> <laughs> talking about... What, what, it was an interesting way of teaching that subject, isn't it? Show, show the class a group of images and ask them to think about what those images represented and which one was God. And interesting that the Christian child in the class, there may have been others, of course, um, chose a ball of light rather than the <laughs> white, long-bearded man, mm. um, even at that age, which was great. That was brilliant. Yeah. And she talked about, um, she used the word logos. Oh, yeah. Do you know what that is, Alison? I do, actually, because I did a bit of Greek. Wenham's Greek, John 1, 1. Oh. And logos is word. But mm. I can't remember anything else other than that. I know that Jesus is the word. So when the Bible talks about word, it's not talking about a person necessarily as in the Jesus because it's talking about in the beginning was the word mm. so right from creation mm. well, what have you got to tell me that I don't know that I'm just running <laughs> um it's pretty much what you said but it's um logos means word but it also means reason so it's I think probably where we get the word logical from oh yeah mm. and this, it's this idea of the sort of reason of God the word of God 
being there at the beginning before anything else was created and it because John 1 sort of carries on talking about the word and then it talks about the word became flesh the natural assumption is that that is talking about Jesus Christ and so it's this idea that the Christ is not just the physical Jesus but was something a person of the trinity that existed before Jesus was born and continues after and it's one of the ways that Christianity has the doctrine that Jesus was God because it says the word was God and it's i think the logos thing is is a helpful way to think about Christ as being removed from just the person of Jesus, Mm. uh, which we think can fit into a box really neatly. It's something much bigger than that and really hard to comprehend. And it moves God into this realm of, well, quite complicated, very big imagery. One of the main takeaways for me from Rosie is that a feminist can look like anyone we're not dictated to by the history of feminism or or anything like that as to how we should live and how we should be. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Right. That's great. I think it was, yeah. it was a, a lovely episode listening to Rosie talking. Right, and thank you, listeners, for listening. Yes, indeed. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Recovering God podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and tell others who you think will be interested. You can follow us on Twitter at Recovering God, on Instagram at Recovering underscore God or contact us by email at recoveringgodpodcast at gmail.com.